The text for the sermon of this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7. Luke 7, the verses 11 through 17. Where the word of the Lord speaks to us today as follows. Now it happened the day after that he, that's the Lord Jesus, went into his city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So far our text, after the ministry of the word, We'll sing in response, Psalm 30, stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when a covenant child is presented for baptism, the congregation prays before the baptism, grant that he, comforted in you, may leave this life which is no more than a constant death. These words can be rather startling, and for some they may seem to be a bit of a downer. Why do we mention death at the baptism of an infant, where God's promises of life, of fullness, and salvation are proclaimed? No doubt the mention of death can cause a lot of pain, especially if you have recently or even for that matter, not so recently, lost a loved one. And yet for Christians, we know that the mention of death at a baptism of a covenant child ought not to give cause for a knee-jerk reaction. The grip of death pales in comparison to the grip that Jesus Christ has on the life of the child incorporated into the church by baptism. This is why we pray as we do at a baptism. Our prayer is not one of despair, but of soberness. We know, and we've also as congregation seen that again in the past week, that this life is a constant death. And at the same time, we pray for this child with a hope for the better day, which we know is coming. It's coming because the Lord Jesus has complete authority over life and death. We know this is true because Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus died and rose again from the dead. 
But his power to rise from the dead doesn't come as a complete surprise. No, a passage like our text prepares us for his mighty act of redemption when he gave death the final blow. At the gates of a small town in Galilee, the Lord Jesus spoke the words and raised a young man from the dead. At a funeral procession outside of Nain, he displayed his power to comfort us and to stimulate us to worship. And so I bring to you God's word this morning, the gospel message of our text with this theme, the Lord of life defeats death at the funeral of a widow's son. See three things first, anguish over death. Secondly, authority over death. Thirdly, awe over new life. The Lord Jesus has just performed a miracle at Capernaum. It's in the first part of chapter 7. There he showed the power of his word by healing a centurion's servant without even seeing him. He spoke at a distance and that servant was healed. Verse 11 then starts out, how it happened the day after that Jesus went to Nain. Nain is some 25 miles south of Capernaum, so it amounts to about a day's journey from the one to the other. So we have, our our text puts us in southern Galilee. We don't know a whole lot about Nain. We know from other sources that it was a rather small town. Verse 12 informs us that it has a town gate. Typically, a gate's purpose was to defend the city that was already surrounded by an outer wall. But in the case of Nain, there was no outer wall because the town was so very small. And so this gate served more to identify that there was a town here. You might even say that the gate was decorative. A nice little feature for this little town. Well, as it turns out, congregation, the Lord Jesus never actually quite makes it into town. He has his disciples with him, as well as a great crowd, that crowd that had, been, that had sat under his Sermon on the Mount, and from which many also went with him to Capernaum. So Christ has his entourage with him, wondering, they're wondering what's going to do next. Well, as the Lord approaches the gates of the town of Nain, he is confronted with quite the sight. He sees a funeral in procession. Someone from that little town has passed away, and the procession is taking the body to its final resting place. Now, Jewish funerals, Jewish funeral processions were very different from what you and I are used to today. They were a lot more elaborate, more graphic, more visibly emotional. In the first place, the funeral took place on the very same day that the person died. The body was first washed, anointed with ointments, and then wrapped in linen, quite often from head to toe. The dead person was carried on a coffin, which in those days was something like a stretcher, 
also called a bier. The funeral procession itself would go outside the town gate, like our text, to the family cemetery, which was a tomb that was often built into the rock at the side of the road. All the while, during the procession, however, there were both visible and audible signs of intense mourning. You would see many in the procession ripping up their garments. You would also hear an incredible amount of wailing. Now, for sure, the family and close friends would be wailing loudly. Something that happened, for example, after the death of Jairus' daughter, in Luke 8, verse 52. But not only were the friends and family creating quite the commotion, the procession was always led by a group of professional mourners, hired women whose shrieks and laments further contributed to the noisy commotion. There were also musicians in the procession playing mournful tunes on their flutes. So in the Middle East, you never mourned or grieved the loss of a loved one in isolation or for that matter, in silence. It was a very tumultuous event in the life of the town. Well, this display, brothers and sisters, is what faced the Lord Jesus on his way to Nain. Lord of life with his followers is confronted with the devastation and the despair of death. For indeed, it's not one but two processions that are happening. There were the disciples of Jesus as well as that large crowd following him from Capernaum. And what do they come face to face with? Life meets death. Excitement and anticipation meet mourning, wailing, anguish. And to add to the picture of this anguish, we notice that it happens particularly in the life of a widow, which means that already once before, she has traveled this sorrowful road to bury the body of her husband, At least at that point, she could have taken some comfort in the fact that she still had a son who could provide for her, protect her, put food on the table for her. But on this day, even that source of comfort was taken from her. She is once again traveling this horribly difficult road. For now, she is a childless widow. She's now totally alone. In first century Jewish culture, that meant that she is without any protection, any support whatsoever. There is despair. There's hopelessness. It's very hard for us to appreciate this overwhelming sense of loss unless we've gone through something like it ourselves. This widow is extremely vulnerable. 
ancient hearers and readers of this account would have described her situation as nothing short of catastrophic. It's just about one of the saddest funerals anyone could ever imagine. So we can appreciate why a large crowd from the town was with her. The Old Testament portrays the death of an only son as an occasion for great sorrow and anguish. Jeremiah 6, verse 26, O my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, mourn with bitter wailing, as for an only son. The presence of the large crowd accompanying this widow testifies to the seriousness of the widow's loss, and it also testifies to their great love for the neighbor. Now this this woman's sorrowful situation also does not leave our Lord untouched. He sees the procession. He sees the professional mourners at the front wailing and shrieking, flute players close behind. He sees the woman in front of the bier with the crowd following close behind. The Lord would have known that this woman was a widow because she would have been walking alone in front of her dead son. He sees intense suffering. And what's his reaction? Well, in the face of this saddest of funerals, he shares in the deep anguish of those who are mourning. He is deeply touched. Verse 13, he had compassion on her. Now, the word Luke uses here conveys a whole lot more than our English word compassion. It's a word that conveys a deep, extremely intense, a visceral kind of response pouring forth from the very core of our Savior's being. It's a loving sympathy for someone else's pain. There is no stronger word, as a matter of fact, in the Greek language for sympathy. It appears only here in the Gospels. And is used often to describe Jesus' reaction. He often responded this way to those who were suffering in one way or another. The handicapped, the mute, the lame, the crippled, the blind. He had pastoral compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9 verse 36. Well, so his heart goes out to this grieving, now childless widow. He is confronted at the gate of Nain with the terrible effects of sin, with the misery of a life shattered by death and now crippled by poverty and intense loneliness. There is something very beautiful here about our Savior. The brokenness of this world, of this life, never escapes his notice. The struggles and the burdens we experience also affect him, our chief brother, deeply. And so I ask for those of us who are walking through a burdensome time, a fiery trial of 
one description or another? Do you know him as your compassionate savior? He isn't cold. He is neither standoffish when you go through struggles. He doesn't take an arm's length approach as your savior. He's not like people who are hesitant to come anywhere close to those who are grieving or hurting because they're not sure what to say or might be rather uncomfortable in those situations. The Lord Jesus is there with loving sympathy for someone else's pain. He's there for you in the thick of it with you in your suffering, in your anguish. He knows your grief. He knows every tear you shed. He knows every loss you experience. He knows every bitter pang of your loneliness. He is, after all, our sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5, 7. On the cross, he himself bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took upon himself our sin, our guilt, and also our grief and mourning as one who was prepared in his life by God the Father to do this. His heart goes out to you today. It's not sentimental for us to say that he cares deeply for his children who grieve, who weep. And so we go to him because a passage like our text shows us that in his loving heart, there is room enough for all of our sorrows. He reaches out to comfort and to assure. And sometimes he does that in rather unexpected ways. So that takes us to our second point where we see the Lord Jesus' authority over death. It's the encounter of these two processions was not some sort of chance encounter. It was planned. It was providential. Because we see Jesus and his followers not getting out of the way of the procession, but rather he halts it right in its tracks. He's come to Nain for a purpose, a divine purpose. So he first reaches out to the grieving widow by saying to her, do not weep. Can you imagine that? You are bringing the body of a loved one to its final resting place. You and everyone around you are inconsolable. Words at this point are very cheap. But then some stranger walks up to you, commands you, don't weep. Why on earth would Jesus say this? It seems callous, rather insensitive. This woman here is in the throes of anguish. What else is there to do but weep? It's certainly appropriate when dealing with the loss of a loved one. 
Why would the Lord tell a mother in such a situation not to cry? It simply cannot have any effect. Well, that depends, of course, on who says it. Depends on whether you can actually do something to stop the weeping and the wailing. And Christ was indeed about to do something about it. For immediately after he speaks, he acts. He goes past the widow, he touches the stretcher, stops the procession, which would also have baffled the people then and us today for that matter if we saw it who in their right mind walks up to the pallbearers carrying the coffin to stop them dead in their tracks. Well, not only would the Lord Jesus have baffled the crowds, he would have also horrified the Jews present by touching the bier. Old Testament law, Numbers 19, makes clear that anyone who touches a dead body or the place of a dead body would be unclean for seven days. The Jews would have gasped. This was unthinkable what the Lord did. You just didn't do that kind of thing. Wasn't he at all concerned about remaining clean? Well, brothers and sisters, then isn't there already a miracle in our text before Jesus even raises the man from the dead? He's not ashamed or reluctant to attach himself, connect himself with our sin, our shame, our uncleanliness, yes, with death itself. And as if interrupting a funeral procession were not enough, he carries on. He says at the end of verse 14, Young man, I say to you, arise. Again, our Lord is doing the unthinkable. Who speaks with a dead body? And for that matter, who gives instructions to a dead body? Isn't this all a bit too much? A bit of madness? Well, yeah, only if you cannot actually perform miracles yourself. But we see that Christ's command is not a sign of madness. Rather, it bears fruit. And in verse 15, actually, Luke plays into our bewilderment, our curiosity, by choosing his words very carefully. Literally, it says there, the dead man sat up. The dead don't move. But what is nonsense to man, what is impossible for man, Christ achieves with the word effortlessly. Jesus Christ has the authority alone to raise the dead and restore them to life. No one else can do this. He did it here. He's going to do it with Jairus' daughter and with Lazarus, who had been dead for four days already. And by his power, his apostles will do the same thing, just as the prophets of old had done through the power of the Lord. 
At this point, congregation, we should reflect a little bit on what we read together in 1 Kings 17. There are some parallels between that passage and our text. In both cases, there's the death of an only son. Just as Jesus meets the widow at the town gate of Nain, so Elijah meets the widow at the town gate of Zarephath. But the difference between the two accounts is in how the dead were raised. Elijah takes the boy, carries him to the upper room of his house, and lays him on the bed. He then stretches himself over the boy three times and cries out to the Lord. He prays, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Elijah needed to pray in order for that boy to be healed. But Christ doesn't need to pray. Christ doesn't need to stretch himself three times over the boy. Rather, he could speak directly to the dead son and bring him back to life. I say to you, arise. He commanded, and it came to be. He spoke and it stood forth. And the proof of Christ's victory over death was that the boy began to speak. Verse 15 says, Death couldn't hold this boy because of Christ. This funeral is now over. Then our text gives us this exquisite detail that Jesus presented him to his mother. We see in this gesture a further expression of Jesus' concern for the widow. The young man belongs with her. But there's more to it than that. In fact, the story would be incomplete if Jesus had not done this. When the Lord Jesus gets involved in our lives out of his love and compassion, he goes full board. When we are broken, hurting, in despair or depression, he's the only one able to restore us. He's the only one to restore fully the dead to life. Well, brothers and sisters, we have in our text this morning a delightful foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ. He came in compassion for a people dead in their sins. He came to suffer and to die. The grief of a mother whose child has been taken from her can be reversed because the Father in heaven was willing to give up his only child. And so as Christ did in our text, he did all the more vividly on the cross He faced death head on. And in that face off between life and death, Christ was victorious. There he again showed his authority over life and death and gave the final blow to death by rising from the grave himself. He did this for our sake. He did this to bring us back to life, to release us from guilt and death. Only Christ 
has the power, the authority to do this. And through his resurrection, we have new life, spiritual newness. His resurrection is a guarantee of eternal life waiting for those who today respond in awe and wonder to the work of Christ, his death and resurrection. There will come a day, brothers and sisters, when Christ will restore all believers whose bodies have been laid in the grave. Every believing mother who has lost a child will receive that child back. Every father who has buried a son or daughter in the Lord will be fully comforted by the Lord. And that fact calls you to worship your Savior for his sure promise of your and your loved one's restoration. We come to our final point then where we see awe over new life. For yes, brothers and sisters, it's the work of Christ that begs for a response. Yes, it demands a response from all who see and hear him. We get that in the final verses of our text. Verse 16 tells us, the fear came upon all and they glorified God. They had this deep sense of awe and reverence for this man of God who performed such a mighty deed. And how else could you respond really when you see something like this? How could you not stand in amazement, in awe over this miracle of our Lord? A dead person was restored unto life. The crowd was filled with awe. They could barely believe their eyes. But for sure they did believe what they saw. For their inner amazement turns into words of praise. The crowd glorifies God saying a great prophet has risen up among us. And also, God has visited his people. The crowd knew someone very special was in their midst. He was not some raving madman, a babbler whose words fell to the ground, accomplishing nothing. His word, his command brought results. He has power that the devil doesn't have. He speaks on behalf of the Lord God of Israel. Well, the crowds, their exclamations show that they recognize a pattern, a similarity between this great prophet and some of the prophets of the Old Testament, such as Elijah and Elisha. By the power of God, they also raised up people from the dead. They came to a helpless people and they gave, they provided a beacon of hope. Now, we cannot say that the crowd at the gates of Nain knew or was confessing Christ to be the Son of God, the Messiah. We don't know that. But at the very least, they have ranked him up there among the well-known prophets. Elijah and Elisha, they were the last prophets to raise people from the dead. And that was over a thousand years before the time of Christ. And now, 
people of God can experience this miracle again. Yes, God has visited his people. The consolation of Israel is at hand. The power of this great prophet brought hope to God's people. Even though they may not have fully understood his identity, they nevertheless stood in awe of his powerful work of raising life from the dead. And verse 17 says that this report about Jesus' work spread throughout Judea and the surrounding region. His fame spread throughout the entire region of Judea and Galilee. There was a news flash. Jesus was making headlines. That's important for us to see. What they saw, what they witnessed, they praised the Lord for, and they passed it on. They couldn't keep to themselves the wonderful news that the prophet Jesus of Nazareth holds power even over death. And what we know today is even more than what they knew. We've come, yes we have, to see what this passage is all about, what it points toward. That it points toward Christ coming in love and compassion for us, a people lost in mourning and miserable and wallowing in our own sinful predicament. And he has turned that mourning into rejoicing. He himself died and rose again. He has restored our relationship to God. He's restored us from death. And he's called us today to live a new life in him as we await our glorious resurrection. We cannot take for granted the gospel message about the wounded cross and the empty tomb. The Holy Spirit here invites you to rejoice in it again and again, to stand in awe of the power and of the majesty of your Savior. And we're also invited here to spread the news. The people of Nain saw and were struck with awe over new life, and they shared it with others. Jesus Christ has ultimate power over the living and the dead. We have the gospel of, resurre- of the resurrection. What beautiful news for those redeemed in Christ. So brothers and sisters, how do you respond to this new life you have been given in Christ? How do you respond to the basic but glorious message of the gospel of resurrection? Do you respond with awe and love for your Savior and his power? Do you see him as he really is, as the greatest prophet ever to walk this earth? Yes, as the Lord of heaven and earth. Is do you respond with a heart that realizes your desperate need for Christ? We may rejoice in this gospel and share with those far and near. And if you honor Christ as your Lord, you may look forward to an end to your trials. If you live today out of the new life you've been given, 
and you may look forward to the resurrection promised also to you. You may have hope that you will once again see your loved ones who have gone before you to the Lord. For you have a compassionate Lord and Savior whose very heart goes out to you. You have your comfort in him. You have your hope in him. You have eternal life in him. May your tears be no more. For your glorious restoration is nearer now than the hour you first believed. Amen.